Father, uh, whet our appetites for eternal truth. For we're here to be satisfied by the spiritual food you've given every word that proceeds out of your mouth, the very word of God. Help me to teach it rightly and well, and may your Holy Spirit be the real teacher today. Give the people who hear grace to weigh everything that is said by your word and grace to hold on to what is good and to receive it for what it really is, what you have said to us. We pray in the name of our Lord and your Son, Jesus. Amen. You know, in our church, we give a lot of focus to the Advent season. I, I regard it as a uh, celebration of the doctrine of the Incarnation. It's a worthy uh, task. It's a, it's a worthy cause. And the cause is to, is to focus it all the time on the doctrine of the Incarnation, the enfleshment of God. God taking on human flesh, becoming one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and it's a task, it's a worthy task because there are a lot of competing themes out there. Uh, a lot of things that have nothing whatsoever to do with the incarnation. A few of them almost run counter to the, uh, counter to the themes of the gospel. And so my job, it seems, is to press the Christ aspect <laughs> It seems ridiculous to say that Christmas would have a Christ aspect. It's, it's most of the word, but it's my, my job, my task is to press the Christ aspect of the Christmas season as its essence, as its core, as the only necessary and eternal feature of it. it it's, it's worth the emphasis, in my opinion. The, you know, that four Sundays, you know, four Sundays and then Christmas Eve, you know, so it, 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 that's a lot of the church calendar, but it's worth the emphasis because it's this enfleshment of God in a baby born to a young mother in Bethlehem, Israel, is, the, is in some ways, in many ways, the greatest miracle that has ever taken place. The greatest one. And it's for this reason. It involves somehow, very, it's mysterious. It's, it's, uh, you can really do a lot of unpacking and thinking about it. It involves the very nature of God himself. Something, it's not something God did. It's something God did in himself. God became one of us in the second person of the Godhead, became one of us, and he remains human. He didn't become human for a little while, then go back to being, not being human, but being God. A man, a man, Jesus Christ, stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us right now. And he's God. It's, it, it divides human history in two our calendars still recognize it. It really is the greatest miracle that's taken place. So it, and we, we give it this focus four Sundays a year, Christmas Eve, and I think about how long we've been doing this. I mean, my, myself, I think I just I don't know for sure, but I think it's about 135 sermons on the incarnation that have taken place in December uh, mostly December. I say mostly December. At least we do a lot about it, about Christmas. At least we exercise some discipline about it because we do not begin until the fourth Sunday before Christmas. 
The world begins with their themes. I think I heard Christmas music in Kroger on Halloween. I think... <laughs> and it wasn't one of our themes. It wasn't Joy to the World. I think it was something like Winter Wonderland or something like that. But I, you know, at least we have some discipline about it. But we do, after Thanksgiving, we do give it attention. And today I want to review three big things. They're not the only three. They may not even be the most important three. But three big, big things that the incarnation, the Christmas event, demonstrates. Three big so what's about the birth of Christ. The first is this. The incarnation shows the utter lostness of man in sin. Last week, David Huey was here. He He'll be here tonight, but uh, he preached on joy. Well, how's this for a, you know, kind of a buzz killer, you know? He preaches on joy, 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 joy. And I say the incarnation demonstrates the utter lostness of man in, in sin. So, but it's true. It's true. There, there's no doubt that the salvation of men from sin and it's terrible consequent, it's, it's, it's trump card death, was the central purpose of the Incarnation. That's what it is about. That's what it was about. The angel said to Mary's betrothed, Joseph, Matthew 1, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua, Joshua, God saves for he will for he will save his people from their sins that's according to the angel that's what it's about that's what the incarnation is for the angels announced to the shepherds luke 2 fear not for behold i bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who's christ the lord that's what it's about the adult Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man came. You see, that that's his coming into the world, his birth. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what it's about. The Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 1, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He adds, among whom of whom I am the foremost. But he says that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And of course, both his, and you've heard this before, but both his full deity and his complete humanity are essential to his work of redemption. If he were not a man, he could not have died for men. If he were not God, his death would not have had infinite value. He wouldn't have been holy in the way that the New, the New Testament describes him, is apart from his conception by the Holy Spirit of God, he would have shared in the sin of Adam, as you and I do. Could not have been a holy and blameless sacrifice for sin. So our salvation is absolutely dependent and tied up with the incarnation of God in Christ, the birth of of the Savior into the world. We could not have been saved if Jesus had not been born. See, 
easiest, simplest way to put it. Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? Next verse, To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that's what it's about. It's also clear that the incarnation involves a tremendous condescension, a, a, a lowering on the part of the second person of the Godhead. We get a sense of it, Philippians chapter 2, very famous passage, not, not usually preached at Christmas time, but we, we see this condescension, the steps, downward steps that were necessary for people to be saved on the part of the Lord. Here's Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clutched and held on to at all costs. Next verse. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see these downward steps. These down, 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 down. God, God, second person of the Godhead, becomes a human. It's a step down. And not just any human, not, not a king, you know, not a, a great person, a wealthy person, a king in a palace, something, but he becomes a servant. And not just any servant, but one whose obedience even to the point of death. He gives, makes what we call in the military the ultimate sacrifice. And not just any death. It's another step down. Not just any death, but a humiliating and, and horrible death, death on a cross. Down, 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 down. That's the Philippians 2 passage. 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So we don't see Jesus, we don't see God becoming a man as a you know, powerful person in politics or wealthy, wealthy you know, rich by, or uh, powerful by terms of his wealth, but lowly, humble, poor. You ever notice Jesus is always, this, this would be a good sermon on, a, on its own. You ever notice Jesus is always borrowing things? He's always borrowing things. He was born in a borrowed Whatever he was born, cattle stall or, you know, whatever that was. There's debate about what that was or, you know, question about what that was. But but it was borrowed. It didn't belong to him. He wasn't born in his own house. He presented himself to Jerusalem as king on a borrowed donkey. That's clear. He was even buried in a borrowed grave. Only used it three days. But he borrowed it. And it, John 1, Colossians 1, tells us that he's the creator of everything, and therefore he's the rightful owner of everything, and he's over everyone. But he lays it all aside to become one of us, to share every human limitation and need with us. He, he knew hunger. He came to know hunger, thirst, exhaustion. He knows betrayal. He knows loneliness. He knows unappreciation. He even knows, this is mysterious too, but he even knows temptation. And he, and he even knows death firsthand. 
So here's how the incarnation shows the utter lostness of man in sin. Here's, here's how it leads to that. If we could have been saved any other way, surely God would have done that instead. You know, if we could have been saved by just being better people, He would have showed us how. Well, they kind of did. That's the law. <laughs> Didn't work. But if we could have been saved anyway, by education, by learning something, if we could have been saved any other way, surely that's what would be done. If that's what it took to save us, how deep, how, you know, the God condescending to become one of us and, and not just any person but a servant and obedient to death and even death on a cross, how lost we must have been to, if that's what it took. About ten years ago, I read a, a book by David McCullough, a uh, historian, kind of a popular writer. I love reading his books. But I read a book on the Johnstown Flood, 1889 flood that pretty much wiped out the town of uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. took about 2,200 lives. There's a, an earthen dam about 15 miles upstream. You know, there's rain, 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 rain. And, the, and an earthen dam gave way and released the contents of a lake uh, a mile, about a mile wide and three miles long. This lake comes rushing down on 15 miles downstream on Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I, and a, one of the stories in there, I read of a six-year-old girl who's, who's floating down this, you know, this river on a mattress. Uh, in a rushing water, and the mattress comes within kind of shouting distance of a barn floor that's also floating down the river with about, with about a dozen people on it. And the little girl calls, and, and a, a man, his name's Maxwell McAkron, he, he leaped from the barn floor into the water, and he's down under the water, and he pops up, under, and he pops up, under, and he pops up, and he makes it to this mattress and he clambers up onto the mattress and and he holds the little girl and he calms her as best he can and then the mattress kind of swung by a, uh, a a house where there were people in the that was not the, the you know the water was up high I think it was the upper window and there were a couple of men up there who were trying to reach people that were going by with a long pole that they could grab on and, and help rescue out of the water and and they, they, they come by, you know, the mattress comes by, and they can't reach the pole. And they, and they say, throw that, throw that child over here. Throw that child over here. And, and uh, McAkron said, can you catch her? He, they said, we can try. And so somehow he's on this, and, the, and the, this mattress is being held up partly because it's not just water. It's this water is churning with with. Uh, Pieces of houses and houses and, you know, all kinds of things and timber and the dead bodies of horses and cattle and people. And it's just, a, it's half solid, you know. And, and so he somehow he stands up on this mattress and he flings this child 
toward the window, and they catch her, and they pull her in the window, and she's and she's saved, and then the mattress with McAkron on just keeps on going down the river. He survived too, but 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 that's that's what happened. So why why such drastic measures? Why did they? Why did any of that? happen why did that man fling himself into that brown you know churning water why did it you know why did they throw this child across some some length of you know flood and why did they do all that well the short answer is because that's what it took to save the little girl that's that was the only thing that could those are the only things that could be done her condition was so desperate that's what it took to save her. And so in the same way, our desperation, our plight in sin is so great that it took God becoming a person, a human being, and living and dying. You know, in all of those downward steps, it took all of that to save us, it took his death that we might live. Romans 5 says, For while we were still helpless, this New American Standard Version, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The, the whole of what Christ has done to save us, beginning with his incarnation, his birth, culminating in his death, resurrection, is the measure of our helplessness apart from him. I want to be a little, I want to be as sensitive as I can here. Which, which that sounds like when someone says all due respect, you know, and says with all due respect, you know, you're about to be insulted, you know, right? (laughs) There's no respect coming. But I want to try to be sensitive here and say that our generation has a peculiar way of reasoning from the greatness of Christ's sacrifice to the greatness of our own worth in the son of, in the sight of God. And we even it was even in the song even in one of our songs today that he would fall to show our worth. Well, I'm just uh, let me just say in the in the history a line like that, you know, we've got a great his, the church has a great history of uh, taking secular songs and putting new lyrics to them and making them our own with uh, proud history, you know. <laughs> Our um, a mighty fortress is a drinking song, you know that was that was uh, re, re, uh, acquired by the church and and put our own words to it. But that uh, th- that reasoning from the greatness of Christ's sacrifice to the greatness of our worth, listen. In history, that'll be immediately be recognized as something that must have been written in the early 21st century. <laughs> Couldn't have been written before probably not after to reason from the greatness of the sacrifice to the greatness of our worth in God's sight Uh, it's like look what God did to save me I must really be valuable 
in God's sight. Look at the price that was paid. I must be worth a lot. That's a, that's a reasoning that could only happen in our generation. <laughs> uh, previous generations of Christians reason differently. And, and this also is woven into the, even the song we sang. This is also a part of what we've sung a lot. But previous generations reason differently. They said, look at what God did to save me. I must have been utterly lost in sin. If that's what it took to rescue me from sin and death, I must have been in a horrible shape. <laughs> Look at the price that was paid. Not how much I'm worth. How deep must my debt have been? If it required the blood of the Holy Son of God, what must my debt have been if that's what it took for Christ to pay for it and that's one of the ways to connect these incarnation dots from the incarnation it, the incarnation shows us the utter lostness of man in sin apart from Christ here's another the incarnation shows the deep desire of God to save we sung about that, too. There, if there's something off about reasoning from the price that was paid to our worth in the sight of God, it's, this is not strange. This is not peculiar. Reasoning from the price that was paid to God's love for the unlovely is inexplicable love for the unlovely. God loved you, and you recognize, you can, verses come to mind. God loved you and I so much that he gave his only begotten son over to humiliation and pain and suffering and a shameful death so that you and I might be saved from the full and final consequences of our sin. He consented. The second person of the Godhead consented to lay aside the prerogatives of deity, live as a mere man. The, the, the Creator becomes as a creature. He lives to live in a fallen world, to share all of those experiences, put himself at the mercy of merciless men, to experience for the first time ever for him a break of communion and fellowship with the Father, to die that you and I might regain what we had freely forfeited, that we might have eternal life. What an amazing thing that God should give so much to gain apparently so little. By comparison, at least. By comparison. What a trade that God should give His own Son over to sin and death so that you and I can overcome sin and death. And yet that's what happened. Romans 5 again, one, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't anything, according to that, it wasn't anything in us 
that inspired the sacrifice. It was something in God. His love for God so loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, in the flood story, I told you, you know, Johnstown, it's a little, let's face it, it's a little six-year-old girl floating down the river there on that mattress, probably crying, probably scared, innocent. I, I would. It's kind of a pitiful sight, isn't it? And this, that Maxwell McAkron, he, he's moved. He's moved by it. And he throws himself into the water to, to save her, and he does. But, but what, if, what if it had been someone else on the mattress? What if it wasn't a sympathetic figure like a poor, innocent, little six-year-old girl, scared, crying, calling for help? What if it wasn't that, but someone else? What if it was a less sympathetic figure? The, the dam that broke and the lake that, that emptied onto Johnstown was owned by the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. It's a very private, very exclusive, private club, hunting and fishing, owned by iron barons from Pittsburgh, like Andrew Carnegie was a member. They had been warned about the dam's vulnerability to heavy rainfall, and they didn't do anything about it. Well, they did one thing about it. They blocked the spillway to keep the stocked fish from escaping downstream, which also kept the spillway from doing what spillways do, (laughs) relieve the pressure from heavy rains. And so what if instead of what, what if instead of, uh, of the little girl floating down the mattress, what if it was a, a member in good standing of the, what is it, the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club? What if it was Andrew Carnegie himself? <laughs> a contributor to the fix everyone was in. What if he wasn't crying for help, but instead he was falsely confident in his own ability in, to, to save himself what if he was resistant to the attempts of others to save him what if instead of pleading with God for help he was he was mad at God for letting that happen to begin with we in the comparison to our salvation we're more like Andrew Carnegie floating down on that mattress than a little six-year-old girl. The second, and yet, and yet, the second person of the Godhead flung himself into our world to save us anyway. Romans 5, once again, while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 20th century theologian Karl Barth was asked near the end of his career to identify the most profound theological truth that he knew. He's a tremendously well-known theologian. 
he paused and he said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's not reasonable that God should love us, <laughs> but it is profound. And the incarnation shows the deep desire of God to save. One more dot, one more dot. The incarnation shows the absolute exclusivity of the gospel of God. That's, that's theological language, of course. But what it, in English it means that God has provided one way for man to be saved, to overcome sin and death, and that is through the birth, the death, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And that alone. This is what God has done to save. And this one, sure, boy, it cuts across the grain of our culture, doesn't it? And we see, it, we see it all during the year, but it seems to me we see it this, this time of year by, maybe things are changing, but, but still by the, by the, almost it seems, phobic avoidance of the, of the Christ word in Christmas. And I hear advertisements all, and it seems so awkward. It seems awkward, and it just doesn't seem, it just seems burdensome, awkward, clumsy, to, to substitute the more inclusive, more inclusive holiday, because, you know, it could be any holiday. But holiday trees? Who buys holiday trees? Let's get a holiday tree. Do our holiday, get some holiday presents. Come on over. We're going to exchange holiday presents. And, uh, you know, holiday, who talks that way? I don't, <laughs> unless it's forced, unless it's... Unless it's uh, you know, something you're making yourself do. Uh, uh, another uh, 20th century theologian, this one named John Hick, also highly regarded in, in academic circles. He he was the in, editor of a general editor of a very influential book, first published 1977, titled "The Myth of God Incarnate." The Myth of God Incarnate. You you can still buy the book. It published 1977, but it's still being published. Although I, I recommend rather rather than do that, rather than do that, get David McCullough's book on the Johnstown flood. It's you know, I don't recommend reading it in any way. But here's what he wrote in this: the problem, which has come to the surface in the encounter of Christianity with other world religions, is this. If Jesus was literally God incarnate, and if it is by his death alone that men can be saved, and by their response to him alone that they can appropriate salvation, then the only doorway to eternal life is the Christian faith. And we can agree with that statement almost in its entirety the only thing the only problem we would have is that he calls this a problem <laughs> these aren't problems they're features did you notice how the statement i just read it and you i mean you grab some of it but you probably didn't notice but it but it goes it goes from christmas to good friday without mentioning either 
If G- here, here, I'll read it again. Listen for Christmas and Good Friday. And I'll just read a, a portion of it. If Jesus was literally God incarnate, that's Christmas. And if it is by his death alone that man can be saved, that's Good Friday. And this is a, this is a problem. So the Christian faith is salvageable. But if it's to prove a good neighbor in the in the community of world religions, we got to do something about that Christmas part, and we got to do something about that Good Friday part to make them more compatible with ever with everyone else. They, those are those are uh, they're exclusive. They're not inclusive. They're exclusive. But the Christ of the Bible refuses to take his place as one among many religious leaders like a Mohammed or a Buddha or a Confucius or an L. Ron Hubbard or whoever. He will not be one of several. He's the creator of everything, including you and I and Mohammed and everyone else. He's the Lord of everyone. Every knee will bow every tongue confess he's literally god in human flesh our emmanuel god with us here's john and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth then this christmas and good friday in this part they're exactly the same they leave no room whatsoever for other religious options to fulfill the same Thing. the prophet Isaiah wrote all of us all of us like sheep have gone astray each has turned to his own way but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him you remember the you remember the baptizer's declaration John the Baptist Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 2. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for, you know what the next word is? Everyone. Henry Thiessen and in his book, Lectures in Systematic Theology. It's one of those books I read, so you don't have to. But here's a nugget from it. Other religions base their claim to the recognition, to, their claim to recognition on the teaching of its founders. Christianity is distinguished from all of them by the importance it assigns to the death of its founder. Take away the death of Christ, as interpreted by the Scriptures, and you reduce Christianity to the level of the ethnic religions or regional religions. Though you would still have a higher system of ethics, were we to take away the cross of Christ, we would have no more salvation than these other religions. Take away the cross, and the heart of Christianity is gone. So, yes, truth is narrow but truth always is. That 2 plus 2 equals 4 excludes all other answers as wrong 
though it may seem in our peculiar time, it may seem intolerant to say so. And in the same way, the Bible and and the Christian faith proposes a truth of the very same kind. The same kind of proposition as 2 plus 2 equals 4. But it's this. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. He came among us at a place called Bethlehem. A place you can go to, still called Bethlehem. He died for the sins of mankind so that we could be spared the penalty of our sins through faith in Him. And that's the proposition. And really, when you think about it, no wonder some are reticent to even speak the word Christmas because it's so Christocentric. (laughs) Scripture calls Christ both a cornerstone for some and a stumbling block for others. Don't stumble over the claims of Christ. Don't stumble over what the Bible says, who he is and what he did. Instead, make him your cornerstone. Make him the solid foundation that all the rest of your life is built on. It all, everything rests, is held up by that. Because he who believes in him will not be disappointed. God has rescued us in Christ. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. It's only the incarnation of Christ. Only the the birth of a Savior in Bethlehem that brings all these incredibly wonderful things now in the future. Father in heaven, uh, let the witness of Christ be strong today and tomorrow and beyond into the new year. Uh, Let it be strong in our families among those who do not know Christ, who are celebrating things like family and prosperity and the goodness of life, but missing the very center of Christmas because of unbelief. And let it be strong in our neighborhoods and among our friends and acquaintances and in our country. Let the witness of Christ be strong with your people and strong by your Holy Spirit. And let some come to know you as you did for each one here who does. And for we have come to, who've come to believe that our rescuer came into this world at Bethlehem. Thank you for our Emmanuel, our God with us in the person of Jesus Christ, our advocate, our Savior. And we pray in his holy name. Amen. Amen.